Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Episode 4, The Scaries Selkie. My guest is Jen Murphy. Jen is a feminine embodiment coach, mythologist, and anthropologist. She is the creator of Celtic Embodiment, a cutting-edge modality that fuses the ancient wisdom of Celtic mythology with the emerging field of feminine embodiment coaching to transform modern life for women. Jen is a certified feminine embodiment coach and holds a degree in medieval Irish and Celtic studies and an MA in anthropology and development with specialism in critical pedagogy. She empowers learners to critique the power structures at play in their own learning experiences. Jen's philosophy is let your body and mythology guide you home, home to you. I have the good fortune of being part of Jen's year-long program, The Celtic Women's Voyage, where Jen takes us on an Imrov, a mystical, embodied journey to the other world and to the realms within. So I am so excited to have Jen Murphy here with us today. It's been an honor to learn from her over the last several months, and I'm so excited for her to come and share a story today with us. Jen, welcome. Fulcha. Oh, thank you, Marissa. I am absolutely honored to, yeah, to be here with you today and to continue our journey and our evolution together and um, yeah in that rhythm of stories so thank you for having me oh you're so welcome you're so welcome as soon as i got to know you through your celtic women's imrav i knew that i wanted you to be part of not work and i knew that it would be a really powerful conversation. And of course, one of the most exciting things for me is inviting a guest on and saying, well, what sort of story would you like to tell? And, you know, going through the possibilities. So when you said that you, you know, work with the Selkie and knowing that you are there in Scaries on, in Dublin, not too far from the Irish Sea, it seemed like the perfect story for you to come and tell us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, where I live, you can literally see the Irish Sea from my house and we share our community with harbour seals and with grey seals. So they are like a full kind of feature of my life and um, interestingly my parents told me that when I was born if I was going to be a boy they're going to call me Ronan which means little mm. seal in Irish as well so there's a nice connection there I've always felt to that silky energy yeah well, I'm so excited to talk all about why and how the stories resonated, you know, across the centuries and now, but let's begin with the story and we'll see where it takes us. Beautiful. So I just call this story, The Scary Selkie, um, and it's just inspired by the place that I live and also the tradition um, of the Selkie um, in Irish culture. Long ago, in the path that once was, and now ceases to be, but lingers through the thread of time, the full-bellied moon hung over the small coastal town of Skerries. It was here that lived our handsome young man with his inky curls and bloodied cheeks. A fine lad, but of the lost kind, who never looked you in the eye, only over your shoulder to see what was offered beyond. He was forever searching for what no one knew. The girls in the town, oh, they lined up, but not one of them could capture his gaze. This night, he traipsed across North Beach under the star-streaked sky a pensive gate. He had no purpose but to escape the plague of disrupted sleep. Searching, always searching, 
he gazed up. The moon seemed especially bright. With the flash of brilliance, a lighthouse on point, the man saw the outline of female figures on the beach. The silhouettes of their creamy bodies reeled him closer in captivation. He dropped to his knees and crawled across the rocks. The women danced and barked with freedom that was alien to him. Seaweed treasures of flow. Their glisten popped the man's eyes, as did something else. Something closer. The women's sealskins on the rocks. Before his mind could negotiate with his body, the man leapt onto the nearest rock and snatched a sealskin. Then one of the women called in the chime of wind on bones. Her sisters slipped back into their sealskins one by one with divine ease and hobbled on their bellies into the sea, all but one. She searched for her sealskin, clambering the rocks in confusion. The man stepped from the shadows, skin in hand. Be my wife, he implored. The seal woman refused, for she was not of the land. Yet the man held firm. He told her he would love her more than Manahan MacLear, the god of the sea, loves the waves. He promised to give her her seal skin after seven winters with him. On the spring of the eight, she would be free to return to her sisters. So she went with the man. And she returned his love. In time, they had a child, a son prosperous in the black curls of his father and otherworldly beauty of his mother. She called him Ronan, little seal. She taught him tales of Aaron Amara, the song of the sea, of a world as expansive and wondrous as the soil beneath their feet. She loved to watch him race through the fields with the grace of a hare and imagine his speed underwater. She loved her boy with every echo of her being. But as the years travelled by, four years, five years, her shine began to fade. Skin dried, flesh cracked, eyelids flaked. Treasures lost their glisten. The weight fell from her salubrious frame. She tried to carry on for her wee one, but her life force was leaking. Drip by drip by drip. The boy was so afraid for his mother, he went to the local band Fassa, the wise woman, who told him there was only one cure for his mother to reclaim the part of her that was lost, to return home to herself. The boy was puzzled, for she had a home. He asked his mother what the old woman meant and witnessed a fleet of nostalgia lighten her eyes, then darken once more as she continued to fade. One night, the boy awoke to shrieking and booming below, his mother and father embroiled in a desperate conflict. He heard his mother plead for her sealskin back. For eight winters had now passed and they were heading for a ninth. His father refused with a tirade of guilt-fueled words. For how could she leave the man she loved and her only son? Ronan covered his ears, but their words raced into his bloodstream and pounded his heart. It was all too deafening, all too much. He clambered into the eaves to escape. And there, through the, tr the cracks of starlight, he saw something flicker, 
a wink of silver. It was his mother's sealskin sewn into the roof of the thatch. He touched it and remembered the snugness of her salty womb. He sniffed it and drank in her wild scent. He stroked the skin against his cheek. He cried for his mother. The next morning at dawn, just after his father had departed for the harbour to catch a day's work, the boy revealed his discovery to his mother. Her eyes gaped in desperate hope as she flew up to the eaves and unbound her skin, sobbing with grief and elation. She raced to the beach with Ronan on her hip, threw on her skin and began her descent into the cold green water. The boy was at home in the sea as he travelled on his mother's back out to St. Patrick's Island. Her sisters surfaced and swirled around her. Their bodies moved as bliss for their lost one had returned. Her skin began to glow once more, her eyes wide and shining with sea life. She plumpened, she ripened. Yet she knew her son could not stay. Little Seal knew this too. Together they wept. After a time with his Seal family, guided by his mother and her sisters, Ronan landed back on the shore in Skerries. My boy, my beloved boy, the greatest blessing life has bestowed on me. I cannot survive without my seal skin, but this does not mean I do not love you. I love you with every pulse of blood that permeates my heart. We beat together as land and sea. As these words from his seal mother washed into Ronan's ears, he felt deep sadness, but he understood. The texture of his pain was weaved with knowing. To see his mother at home in her sealskin was to witness nature's truth. As each full moon cycled by, you could catch a glimpse of Ronan on the beach, resting into the embrace of his seal mother. Sometimes he would swim out to St. Patrick's Island, granting his own seal space to express. He grew up to become a legendary seafarer, his sulky mother, his guide, always at the bow of his ship. Shin A, that is it, the scary sulky. Oh, Jen, what a gift. Thank you so much. You just, you took us there. And there and below and there and below. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Mm. You know, there's such a classic nature to that story. And it's one that, you know, I think I first encountered years ago and, and said, oh, there's something so true in this. But it's something that I think becomes so much truer in each retelling, especially when one is a mother, when one is a woman who's mm. reached a certain age where she feels like perhaps she's lost pieces of herself. And I have a feeling that's a real reason why that story resonates so deeply for you is that so much of your work seems to be around that sense of reclaiming and retrieval. Yeah, I absolutely adore this story. And the story is told, so it can be told as a selkie, but it's often told as well as on Vajin Vara, which means the sea maiden in Gaelga, the Irish language. And the, the sea maiden is usually a telling where either her seal skin, her fish tail, or what's called a brat, which means a magical cloak in Old Irish, is stolen from her by a man. And she is forced then to live his life with him, you know, but to live under his rules, I suppose, until she can reclaim back her sense of self, 
usually with the help of a child. And I suppose for me, this is really a representation of the world that we find ourselves in, in terms of patriarchy and living in this hyper masculine, hyper productive environment and losing our sense of self, losing our feminine as a result. Mm, Yes, yes. And that so many of those invitations seem so sweet, perhaps at first, because when you offer us the fisherman, he's a romantic hero, right? You can see him walking mm-hmm. in with his beautiful black curls. And you can sort of understand like, mm, you got to watch out for that one. But you could see how he could call you right in, right? So when he's mm-hmm. asking her to stay, and he's offering his love, and he's offering, you know, he's offering the land, and he's offering the world of men, you can understand why she says, all right, you know, I could try this for a while. I'm strong enough and you're attractive enough. And that's Mm -hmm. how that loss becomes, well, I suppose it is a mistake, but it's a mistake that all of us make over and over again. And we realize we have our reasons why, because it does appeal to a part of our nature that longs to say, yes, I'll try it over there in your world. Mm, Yeah, I love how you express that. And yeah, I feel that for sure, because we all have these masculine and feminine expressions that we can hold in our bodies, you know. And so the masculine is appealing to us. It's that container. It's that support, you know. And I definitely over my life, I mean, I spent a long time where I lost myself to that, and in particular in how I worked. I had a very busy role um, managing the education department of an international NGO. And my way to operate and survive in that environment, I really leaned in and I got hyper productive and I burned out as a result, you know, and I never felt like I could do enough. And so I never felt like I was enough. And I suppose as I reflect on that now, yeah, and the work that I do now, I feel like I was searching for my feminine. I never felt enough because I was only operating with half of my potential, if you will. It's only operating in my masculine, you know, and I'd forgotten. Mm. I'd left my seal skin on the rocks and I had suited up and headed for the city. Right, right. You know, that reminds me, I was a very wise woman who has now passed on. I remember her once saying uh, into the great oracle that is Facebook, how is it that so many of us who are on this path in search of the divine feminine keep doing it in a masculine way? Well, it becomes a quest, which though we know from the hero's journey may or may not be inherently a masculine process, but it becomes that sense of I'm going to do the goddess. I'm going to do the feminine. I'm going to do this work of nurturing and caring and hearing you in the sense of, you know, your work was devoted to education and care and an NGO that would have offered help across the world. And yet in that, which could be seen as a really sacred feminine form of work. And yet we, in this modern patriarchal culture, feel we have no choice but to do it in this all straight lines, all straight ahead, no pain, no gain, keep pushing, hustle, hustle harder, and maybe then we'll win. Yeah, yeah, you're so right. It's something to get done. Whereas like with the feminine, it's more of a becoming, you know, because we're never done, you know, like, and we should never be done until the day that we pass, you know, we're ever unfolding and ever evolving. So it's not another tick box, you know, that's done. I've sorted out the divine feminine in my life. It's an experience, you know, of like, of playing with our seal skins as well. But I feel that so many of us do this um, because we're not skilled in our feminine anymore. And with the work that I do, like this Selkie story out of all of the myths and folklore um, that I explore, this one just seems to 
ignite something in the women I work with, a poignancy, a deep grief almost um, when they experience this story. And I feel it's because we have been conditioned in polarities to value our mind, our intellect over our body, to value people over nature, doing over being, logic over intuition, you know. And as you mentioned, yeah, that linear world that we live in, as opposed to living cyclically like nature, like a woman's body. Mm. And I love how the story itself offers us so many cycles, both in terms of the Selkie story and as you were describing the Vajanvara story, in terms of how it's moving from the sisterhood and the sense of this, you know, real council of women, and then coming in and yes, she falls in love, but she falls in love also with her own child and with her own self mm -hmm. as mother. And that then when there's that recognition, oh, ma'am's not well, I, I need to find help. The little boy goes to the old woman, he goes to the Bonfasa, and she offers her wisdom from across time. So we're seeing all these different aspects and elements of life, all kind of co-creating with one another to help heal and preserve. Because of course, I find it so amazing that it's, you know, it's, it's the mother in the center that and so often, you know, in my work, I work with archetypes I've developed on this idea of the princess and the queen and the wise woman, mm -hmm. and that we are always intended to be all three throughout our entire lives. It's just that so often we forget, especially in the midst of it all, and we just start queening our asses off and think that's the only way it has to be. But in fact, we need the support of that wild and free and adventurous princess, the child and, and, and Ronan in the story. And we need the wisdom and the stillness and that I've seen absolutely everything of the Bonfasa in order for for the Selkie, for the queen to be restored and find that her whole self is not about keeping the house and keeping her husband and, and keeping up appearances. Yeah. Wow. That is just such a potent interpretation um, that I've never reflected on myself. So thank you for that, Marissa. And yeah, I completely agree. All of this, the interplay of all of the aspects of self and the full expression of self, you know, and allowing those different dimensions to come out as and when. And living cyclically and reskilling in the feminine can really help us do that, to know, you know, well, when is that energy of the child, of the young maiden accessible to me in my life? Or when should I be in my queen energy and my sovereign power? Or when do I need to retreat into that wise woman, that Ban Fassa energy? So, yeah, I love the way you've expressed that and tied that all together. Um, in the story and you know what really what really seems to to capture the heart with this story as well is Ronan and is the little boy and his acceptance of his mother needing to be herself you know and his recognition that actually if she doesn't have her steel skin she's of no, she will lose her health. And ultimately she is of no use in a way to the family because she's fading away. She's losing her life force. Yeah. Yeah. He's able to see the wildness in her and love that as the truth of who she is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So Another piece of this story that I identified just at the beginning of you reading it was the sense of being in sisterhood and then that sense of rupture and separation. And that for, for her entire quest at, you know, beyond motherhood was also to get back to that sense of, of companionship, to get back to her sisters, to get back to the arms of the sea. And I'm curious about how you see 
that particular aspect of the journey showing up in women's lives and how you think about that and play with that? Yeah, like what I would say about sisterhood is it absolutely astounds me. Like I'm astonished at the power of women coming together in a safe space, a safe container to just share and be listened to and be held. The absolute alchemy of that is, I mean, it really is for me the medicine for our times because I suppose for women in particular, you know, we've had eons of having to compete with one another to feel safe you know and very practically if you look over kind of even the timeline of the 20th century I mean you couldn't own like a credit card on your own without the nearest man in your life giving consent until not that long ago maybe 50 years ago like you had to find a man to feel safe because it wasn't safe for you to be on your own in terms of the agency that you had and that's what women have fought for yeah so evocatively over particularly the last couple of hundred years so I feel that by us coming together that we've always been searching for that sense of sisterhood but because we've had to compete with one another we've been blindsided you know Um, But I feel that now is the time that we are coming home and that we are recognizing the alchemy in sisterhood and just being with one another. And that is all it takes. Mm, And that is all it takes. Isn't that a remarkable open-ended and yet a cluster of words of saying, yes, we could just come together and then see what unfolds, see Mm -hmm. what alchemy is awaiting us, because that's where the real co-creative magic starts to happen. Yeah, for sure. And it is, you know, it is allowing that becoming, that beautiful becoming together in sisterhood, Mm -hmm. you know, and slowly, slowly over time, starting to erode, you know, that sense of competition or that sense of distrust among one another, you know, and really seeing each other in our full expressions. So in our seal skins, out of our seal skins, in our grief, in our joy, our elation, in the depths of despair, in the wildness of life, of motherhood, or whatever life looks like for you, you know, having that witnessed and honoured is just so profound. Mm. Yes. Yes. So because you and I, of course, are talking on Zoom across an ocean, you're there in Scaries and I'm here in the Hudson Valley in New York. I am looking at your the symbol of your work, which I suppose in the most mundane ways is the logo. But it's just kind of en- entrancing because you realize how rarely you get to just sort of sit with a piece of sacred geometry. And that is in so many ways is what this symbol of the Celtic Embodiment School that you've created is. And to me, it really feels so emblematic of everything we're talking about. And I'm seeing, you know, there's there's straight lines and there's curved lines. There's mm-hmm. a center point, and then it all radiates out to the edges and calls you back into the center again. So just in and of itself, I just want to offer that appreciation. But sure, it you. also seems so interesting that our whole conversation feels like to me, and I, th- I think in terms of sacred geometry myself, it's, it's part of my healing tradition too, but I'm feeling this idea of we're talking about the cycles and that sense of that spiral. We're talking about that sense of sisterhood and being part of a great collective and then going off and being part of a dyad of a couple and then a triad of a family. And then there's another piece here that I'm also really feeling really viscerally And as you were just saying, it's that sense of with our seal skins and without our seal skins. And there seems like another, and this is so hard to, of course, explain what one is seeing inside the geometry, inside their own head. It's the quickest way to sound absolutely insane. But I just, (laughs) in a sacred, beautiful way, because sometimes madness can be, but also difficult to express over a podcast medium. (laughs) 
But I'm really just the sense of woman with seal skin on as this dark force of nature, of being underneath the ocean and all of the, the sacred, powerful nature of the darkness. And then when she pulls off her skin and Irish people of, of native extraction being notoriously pale skinned, <laughs> that there would be that beautiful white sense of being out in, in the day and in the light, whether it's of the moon or of the sun. And I'm just feeling that sort of interplay of both aspects of the self in being, well, it's not either or, it is both and. But I'd love to talk about that sort of, that that tension between these two, the dark parts of the self, the light parts of the self, and how this woman does get to be both, at least for a time, mm. in their own season. Yeah. And I mean, for me, that is the great quest of this life, to be able to embody the full spectrum of who we are you know the dark and the light and every color in between because I suppose like to, to apply a feminine embodiment lens on this like in my work what I explore is really around how systems of oppression can play out in the body you know so like how we are culturally and socially conditioned obviously plays out in our expression in life and for women like just from from my own work and um, a lot of the times, you know, those kind of darker emotions like the anger, like the rage, the frustration, you know, they are just not acceptable. We're supposed to like just put up with things, you know, and just manage. And as a result, mm. they become stored as frozen tension in our bodies. And the more frozen tension that we have in, the, in our bodies, the less capacity we have to feel, to feel it all. Like embodiment is about inhabiting the full self, about really coming home to who you are. And that means being with the full range of emotions and being able to work through those in your body to, you know, restore that frozen tension to a sense of flow, you know, because the body keeps the score and the more layers of frozen data you have in your body, the more numb you'll become and life will become less magic, more mundane. So really for me, this kind of, as you speak to these polarities, it's about being able to move through those polarities in real time in the body, you know, so that mm -hmm. um, we can really be that full expression, no matter what it looks like at any given point in time. Mm. So this begs the question, knowing that so much of your work is related to the body, do you have practices that you recommend to women when they're working with the Selkie story to really kind of call this into them, to really feel this? Is that part of your work? Yeah, I have a practice called the Celtic Woman's Call uh, Selkie Practice. So it is an embodiment practice of non-linear movement. And um, so non-linear movement just really means moving your body in whatever way your body feels called. So dropping the awareness into the body and just asking the body, body, how would you have me move? And moving from this place. And then in this practice, I invite women to orientate themselves towards their selkie skin. So where is it? Is it in front of you? Is it behind you? Are you wearing it? Does it feel very far away? And then to draw from this place to magnetize it, to draw it in closer and try it on, to really feel into the body sensations of what it might be like to really be in your selkie skin. So yeah, so non-linear movement is really an important aspect of my work because it helps us open the channels of communication between the body and the mind. You know, we're dropping the awareness out of the mind and down into the body because I suppose like in any given time, we're only about 5% consciously aware of what's happening. 
in any given time. You know, 95% of the activity that goes on in our minds is actually unconscious, you know. So we want to be able to access some of that. And I believe that a lot of that actually resides in our bodies. Mm, Yes. I love how that practice really invites the body to return to its own sense of sovereignty mm. and that dropping from the mind where we've made it into you know the crown jewels of what it is to be human and that we're constantly relying on those few pounds of brain matter to tell us everything there is to know about what's happening around the world and in in our bodies and the contents of every library that ever existed if google's not available <laughs> i love that calling to to come back and drop in and it feels like intuitive and non-linear are two words that would would fit really well together in that process yeah for sure they do you know and this really ultimately is about activating your intuition so knowing Mm -hmm. where intuition lives in your body Because intuition is your greatest source of power, you know, and I suppose like intuition has been vilified for, yeah, for centuries now, you know, in the form of magic. So magic originally Mm -hmm. was heresy, and then it became presented as complete and utter nonsense. Like move away from that nonsense, get back up into that brain. You know, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And for Mm -hmm. me, this is Mm -hmm. actually, we're doing, we need to do the opposite now. We've gone too far, too far into the realm of the mind and close down our intuition, which is so powerful. So for me, it's an invitation to go back into that place of power because once you activate your intuition, magic will just absolutely flow into your life. It genuinely will. Mm -hmm. You know, it is your source of power. Because the magic's always there Mm. unfolding around us all the time, right? Because, and as you're saying, you know, we're only aware of 5% of what goes on in our brains. I I wish I could track down where I was reading this, but just the amount of information that, and I don't necessarily mean like off of our phones, I mean like information in terms of the exact temperature of the air and the the exact the feel of the breeze on our skin and the sense of the ground beneath our feet like all of this is the information that's constantly coming at us all the time and some parts of our minds are and our beings let's say in that broader sense of the mind are aware because we are indeed animals who mm-hmm. once upon a time lived out and had to be so hyper aware of everything in the earth and in the waters and in the atmosphere that what would that be like to open ourselves up again to open our i think and it seems like that is what the intuition is or is at least very closely related and a seeing and being in magic is to be able to open up our more than human senses to allow the earth the nature the world around us to touch us to somehow be information worth paying attention to. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it kind of reminds me as well of our heritage, you know, of our ancestral lineage and those teachings, because in ancient Ireland, there was a belief in animism, you know, that everything possessed a soul like in Breton law, there were certain laws, and um, Breton law is the indigenous law tracks around the protected trees. So there are grades of trees. And if you felled a tree, you could suffer a severe penalty. And particularly if it was the likes of an oak, because it was recognized that, that everything around us possessed a soul. It possessed an essence. And In that way, I often reflect and think, wow, like the world must have been just so much more magical for our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And can we bring that back, please? I would like more of that in my life now. Yes, yes. When everything has an aliveness, we're invited to be in relationship with it. And, you know, it just occurs to me, 
you know, maybe we would have a lot less trouble with the other humans in our lives if we realized they weren't the only ones we got to talk to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like absolutely, you know, honestly, as part of my own practice, I have a friend, a tree, a young oak uh, that mm-hmm. I visit and I speak to this tree, mm-hmm. you know, and I've gotten over mm-hmm. the onlookers thinking, what is your one doing there? And yeah. <laughs> I've developed like that. That tree has helped me I call that tree white thorn. And it has really helped me mm-hmm. to activate and connect again with my intuition, you know, and the, the kind of the, the wilder aspects of self and of nature have so much to offer us because even when you look at wild animals, like wild animals don't experience trauma, whereas we do and domesticated animals do. And it's because we don't allow ourselves the time to move through our emotions, our felt senses, everything that is happening in real time. So like an example of that would be a very simple example. Like if you were in the woods and came across a doe, that deer, as soon as it senses you nearby, it'll become hypervigilant, looking up, stalking the environment. What's happening here? Am I under threat? And then once you're gone or they sense that the threat has disappeared, their whole body will vibrate to expend that energy, the hypervigilant energy out of their bodies to dispel it in real time. Whereas we don't do that because of our social Mm. and cultural conditioning. And a a well-known example of this is like when you fall on the street, you know, and you're so embarrassed that you, you know, clamber up really quickly. And, you know, later on you might be bawling crying because you haven't had a chance to actually let that move through you. So I feel that there's just Mm. so much in terms of that wild aspect, that not aspect of nature that if we allow it to move through us more we can just create so much more ease more pleasure more magic in our lives Mm. oh Jen you're bringing tears to my eyes I just recovered this memory that I hasn't occurred to me in I don't even know how long well I know it would have been in 2000 two and i was in graduate school at ucd in dublin and i remember i was walking on the sidewalk outside of saint stephen's green and i tripped and oh my gosh i'm really emotional this is wow talk about the trauma we hold on to right Mm. i tripped and i fell and i remember the shoes i was wearing they broke (laughs) and there were doc martens they really should have been like they should have held together doc martens mary janes and this father and his son stopped and he said stop stop this lady's just fallen and he like took my hand and helped me up and i remember how lonely i had been in that moment Mm. i just wanted to follow that man and his son home (laughs) yeah and just that because you know it was being a student abroad and it was after 9 11 and you know it was an odd time to be to be away and just to be alive you know after you know in 2002 Mm. and that sense of having to pick myself up and go right home and go to my flat and just go on and read more Irish plays <laughs> and act as if it hadn't happened. Yeah. And my goddess, like clearly this has left this try. I'm, I'm, I'm literally sitting here 20 years later with tears on my on my cheeks, remembering that moment. Yeah, because, because the body keeps the score. Your body remembers, yeah. you know, and there's a beautiful book by Kimberly Ann Johnson. I I think it's called Call of the Wild, where she really speaks to this and speaks about the trauma mm. of like when you fall on the street and you suppress, like you might want to lie there naturally and cry and let it all out, but you're mm. so socially yeah. conscious, like you were in a foreign country, like there's so much hypervigilance coming in there and you just got up and, you know, yes, you are helped, but like, yeah, that just kind of, it's traumatic for the body, you know? Mm-hmm. So being able to move through these, these moments in our lives, you cannot underestimate, you know, and, and, and your evidence of this now, how healing it can be to do it in real time. And it's so mm-hmm. interesting, isn't it? The way we remember the people 
that helpless mm-hmm. in a particular moment in time. I can really all like I can sense your emotion in terms of you know that father and son and receiving that help. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. Mm, yeah, well, it feels like it brings us back to that sense of the different aspects of the self, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked so much about the divine feminine, and I think we've referenced without saying it, the toxic masculinity. But wow, there was a moment when there was a very kind man who offered that help up. And that's when that's when we have that good, healthy masculine that says, wait, let's stop and help. Let's, you know, let let's make sure everyone's standing on their own two feet so they can keep moving. Mm-hmm. But in a beautiful way, rather than that way we've, I think, twisted it in so many ways in modern culture. Yeah, for sure. And I feel that this is part of our great call at this time is for everyone to be able to access and feel comfortable in the healthy masculine and the healthy feminine, you know, and I'm the mother to two sons. So I really feel not as a weight on my shoulders. I can't kind of think of the phrase, but I feel, yeah, as their mother, I want them to be able to access the full spectrum of what it means to be a human being you know, and not have to conform to a particular ideal or particular expression and numb themselves out in the process. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, it is a weight to be standing against almost all of culture (laughs) that says that masculinity works in a certain way. So if there's both burden and privilege combined Mm. in those, I think they'd be equally true. I mean, I, I speak this as a mother of daughters who is in so many ways in awe of you mothers of sons and knowing that we each, our work is so, Mm. has so much in common. And yet there's some very interesting different ways that the culture has asked us to to stand up in different ways and be warriors and protectresses and and mothers with a slightly different energy. There's a slightly different set of responsibilities. Yeah, for sure. I feel you on that, you know, and again, like for me, it's creating more conversations like this to, to share our ideas as well as we mother girls, boys, whoever would like children of multiple expressions of multiple you know of different binaries or non-binaries you know the more Mm -hmm. conversations we can have around the health of our society and our culture yeah like we'd be on the right track and I suppose for me it's around showing up for my sons as I am they get to witness like Mm -hmm. I don't have all of this sussed whatsoever you know I'm on my own journey day to day I make grave mistakes Mm. you know I learn all Mm. of the time you know I feel like I'm an apprentice to life I don't have anything completely sussed and in a way I don't want to because it would take away from the magic of my own journey and my own unfolding but to try and be authentic for them in them getting to witness that in and not just the good mother, you know, the mother who struggles some days and finds it really bloody difficult, you know? Yes. Yes. Oh, well, Jen, I feel like we could talk about this all day, but I'm loving that we've landed here in a story that is so much about one mother's journey and one mother's identity that we are, you know, claiming ours as as where we are at this point in our lives. And that you as a mentor to so many are also claiming that level of apprenticeship, because I think that that is the most authentic thing we can do is name the ways in which Yes, I hold space for so many. And yes, I'm very much on the journey. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a beautiful note mm. to, to, to end on. So yeah, thank you, Marissa, for that wisdom. Oh, Jen, thank you for yours. I do hope that this is just a farewell for now and that we'll get you back on the podcast someday <laughs> again in another season because I know you are such a wealth of of stories and just those embodied insights that really root us into the land and the sea where these stories were born, but also into the bodies and the consciousness that that still holds these stories and helps them continue to evolve. Well, thank you so much, Jen. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Marissa. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening today. To find out more about Jen Murphy and her work, I encourage you to visit her website at CelticEmbodiment.com. You can find her over on Instagram where she posts amazing images. That's at Celtic Embodiment. And finally, if you're interested in working with Jen this year, I invite you to check out both her one-to-one coaching work as well as her membership program, the Celtic Women's Voyage that I am a part of right now. Jen's one-to-one work is called Mythic Body. Remember who you are. Before we close today, I have a question for you. Do you have a story inside of you that is aching to be told? Do you have a story inside of you that is aching to be found, to be explored, to be healed, to be crafted? You might be interested in joining us in the Sovereign Writers Knot. The Sovereign Writers Knot is my online community for writers and for those who know they need to write, even if they have trouble using the writer word. We meet together every week for 13 weeks. We write together. We speak together, we laugh together, cry together, grow together in a community that is dedicated to helping you meet yourself on the page. The next edition of the Sovereign Writers Knot begins on March 2nd. I would love to have you with us. To learn more, visit marisagowdy.com slash sovereign dash writers, or just go to my homepage, marisagowdy.com and look for the Sovereign Writers Knot. I'd love to have you with us. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at NotWorkPodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. Music on the show is provided by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Our intro music draws together a number of tunes dating back to the 18th century and is entitled The Cape Breton Salute. Find more about their music and shows at BillyAndBeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.